Welcome to Creative Welly, episode 25. My name is DK, the founder of Creative Welly. You can check us out at creativewelly.com. You're listening to the audio version of the unique and independently produced video podcast. Check us out, like I said, at creativewelly.com. This is Courageous Conversations with Bold Human. Big shout out that we always do for our partners in this is David Hamilton over at Flashdog Studio, who hosts us for free. What a wonderful chap. As well as John O'Tucker, who produces the video version of this audio podcast that you're listening to. Thank you, John from Empire Films. And in this episode, we get to chat with Isabella Cothorn, editor of Talk Wellington, an amazing community facilitator as well as Richard Shirtcliffe, storyteller, wild, clean, executive janitor, in other words, the founder, and also an established CEO in his own right. In this conversation, we get into lots of different things around plastics, climate change, community facilitation, Pakihatanga, the future, change, city, and urbanism. Enjoy. Who are your heroes in real life? Hmm. Do you have any? Some people yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. I keep discovering new ones, but I, nice. I got to work with somebody who I think is, is now a hero, uh, a woman called Makarita Makapilu. She works for Wesley Community Action. She does community budgeting uh, and all sorts of other amazing stuff that, that knits together people inside Eastern Purirua. And she's a remarkable human on every level, um, but also an amazing facilitator and uh, can create an environment of, of pretty deep trust, even when there are extremely untrusted people in the room, like people from government. So she's remarkable. That's just one of a, of a panoply of heroes yeah. that I have at the moment. A panoply, that's such mm. a good word. Yeah, that's what they are. I a whole array. That's <laughs> a great word. It is. <laughs> and a good, and a good um, hero, too. Mm. Um, yeah, mine are much more prosaic than that, mm. to be fair. Um, I've, always, I've always said that um, my primary heroes are, are, are my mum and my dad, but for, for really specific reasons. Um, I mean, quite apart from the fact that they're my parents, and, I, and I, you know, they were remarkable, or they are remarkable um, parents. They provided an, an amazing upbringing. But um, mum, because at a time when it wasn't fashionable, really, she, was, she really bust through some glass ceilings. And I, and awesome. I, she was the first uh, non-British woman on the BBC World Service from New Zealand. Mm. She came up, she got onto Two YA Radio New mm-hmm. Zealand, and then she um, and then she she took herself off to England and, and, and got on the BBC World Service. She was the first reporter, non-British um, woman on the BBC World Service, wow. and then got headhunted back to be the first presenter, producer, and director on TV in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. So she was the sort of first face, along yeah. with Shirley um, Shirley Maddock, became Shirley Easter. Um, on TV in New Zealand, mm. um, so she's the first face beamed into the New Zealand living rooms, and you know that was at a time when it was you know it wasn't easy for for, for women to be preeminent in any particular yeah. career. So I, I think she was amazing. She is amazing, um, mm. and Dad for, for for similar reasons. You know, one of the, one of the foremost um, sort of ge- geophysicists, um, you know, in, in his era really. Mm. Uh, so. So yeah, I, I, I hold them as my heroes. But then I have a, a slightly more creative one as well, which is Le- cool. um, well, Da Vinci. Mm-hmm. Okay. In part because I can't quite believe yeah. that it, he was just one guy. Mm. I have the suspicion that he was an early brand, 
a sort of a, a group of people <laughs> who did all like the, a co-op almost yeah. of designers. I mean, and things. who else do you know who's right. achieved that amount of time, yeah. that amount of that, that many things in a mm. in a lifetime? I mean, mm. if if it was one guy, he was one phenomenal individual. Mm. And even if it was a co-op, that was awesome too. Yeah. So mm. yeah, so I, I find. I yeah, I it's fascinating the amount of work and the breadth of different types of industries yeah. and sectors or disciplines that mm. he yeah. managed mm. to not only kind of play in but excel mm. at and push the boundaries yeah. in. Yeah, not just yeah. a human Swiss army knife, but actually <laughs> extremely good at all the tools. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. I, would you I like him, him if he was wrong or would you want to slap him because he'd always be better at you at everything? Well, I, would, I think about people like Da Vinci when I, when I think about <laughs> neurodiversity. Yeah. Because often we think mm. of we think of non neurotypical people as people who, you know, are a bit hard to deal with yeah. for one way or another. But mm. actually, genius is also non neurotypical. <laughs> Otherwise, we'd yeah. all be it. And yeah, genius is is potentially just as hard to deal with as you know being bipolar or schizophrenic or something. So yeah, mm. yeah. yeah, that idea of as well mm. being masters of not just obvious things like drawing or art or business or something but some people are brilliant at just holding court and storytelling one-on-one stick them on the stage they fall over but mm, there's a certain mm, genius in just holding yep. space and uh, yep. building trust is another one right that mm. lady you mentioned like how, how would you deconstruct that though how do you how do you know that she can build trust do you have you figured that out What's I don't trick? know how she does it but but I I could I could hazard a guess just sure. because she puts in the hours and she has done the time, which which always sounds like a, a sort of a prison metaphor, and is not true. But she, <laughs> if you if you stick with something, a group of people, uh, a mission, a mahi, through thick and thin, and you, you you stay with it, you push through, you work through the hard times and the good times, and people people go oh, okay, you know, mm. and where where that mahi is something that's that's a collective endeavour that has, when it goes well, it's got emergent properties and everything's bigger than the sum of its parts. You know, it will bear fruit. And then people can go, ah, you were at the heart of that. You know, you weren't necessarily running around out the front being a leader of it all, but you were were making it happen, you were enabling, you were being a system leader and you've been a system leader for ages. That, that, Builds trust and and that thing. I think things happen to you through that process, and you are shaped by it. So you get to the point where you are better at at, in, at connecting with people, and yeah, help creating the conditions that make them trust you. Mm. Put it that way. And I think also it, it helps to have. I don't. I don't. I know all too little about Makarita's life, but I think it it helps to have. Not led a life of, of blithe and seamless privilege yeah. the whole time. For sure, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, but uh, some hard times, I think, make, make people more, more empathetic. They probably give us brain wiring to, to connect better with others in, yeah. from different walks of life. And, yeah, that all helps you be the kind of person who is willing to be humble and study and learn and work and put the effort into creating a situation where people will trust a little bit. It's interesting, isn't it? I can, I can, I can, given given kind of your field of endeavour, I can understand entirely why she would be a hero for you. Um, and it's probably right now at a critical time in 
in uh, in the development of humankind, actually, that that skill set is is never more required. That that, mm-hmm. that 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 capacity for almost compassionate management to understand the, the other person's perspective, because mm-hmm. it's, it's it, you know it's, it's thing has been really troubling me at the moment. Uh, and I was going to ask you a question on this, actually, how you get around this, because you, you, right now in the world, you've got this incredible. Um, partisanship around any particular issue. You know, we were living in the States for a couple of years until the beginning oh, yeah. of this year and just, you know, 2020, you know, just it was just sort of the collapse of the American empire mm-hmm. and all to do with this this um, this absolutism. Everybody mm. felt that they were absolutely correct, mm. um, coupled with a bit of American exceptionalism in there, which didn't make it any easier for them to navigate. Mm-hmm. But uh, And I thought at the time, oh, the great thing is that yeah, you know, this is this is sort of an American problem. We won't see this in New Zealand because the, the, the sense in New Zealand is that we want fairness, and everyone really wants to be fair, and it's very socially democratic. And then I was watching these marches, just recently. The, just recently, the, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And every single one of the issues that the people were marching against, I had a counter perspective of. And so I, I was down in town, and I, and I, 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 I thought I'll call them and ask them. Oh, yeah. not, not to have an argument, but actually to, to try and understand their perspective. Because I thought, I, ca- I actually cannot see their perspective. So I sort of just asked, started asking questions. You know, what, what are you actually anti here? What, you know, when you say anti-mandate, what are you actually saying? You know, what freedoms yeah. are you actually complaining about? And the answer is I, I was still struggling to really uh, to, to, to work through. And, and I thought, I was thinking about you ahead of this, I was thinking that's exactly your kind of field of endeavour, right? Putting those sorts of counterparties together Mm. And helping them to see those different perspectives, and I, <laughs> I have to I, have, to have I, a little I, disclaimer before you give me too much credit. There, oh, I, 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 I would, I would, I would hesitate for a long time before trying to bring together um, anti-vax people and, yeah, citizen sovereignty people and other people. But thanks. Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Just more yeah, broadly. But, just from yeah, the point of view of, of yeah, yeah, tr- yeah, trying to trying to get people with counter perspectives, yeah, divergent to, 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 mm-hmm. find, to find some sort mm-hmm. of you know middle ground because God knows we need it, and we so, need it more than ever because mm-hmm. of what the next five years are going to mean for humankind in the, in the sense of development of AI. And yeah. boy, that's a hell of a leap. <gasps> but it's yeah. fifteen years and climate change because we've only got really that window. Well, that's right. Um, but if you think about you know, there is an argument that says that. That the um, the way we're going to solve climate change and global plastic pollution and these massive existential issues is going to be actually done for us by by AI. Mm. But the problem is that over the next five years, AI is going to learn its value set. And I say it's, but you understand mm. what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. It's going to learn its value set from us yep. and from how we behave. Yeah. Yep. And right now, we're behaving mm. globally more divisively than ever. Yeah. Mm. So it's going and to learn very divisive constructs and that, yeah. I worry about that right what does the world look like five years from now yes mm-hmm. it can solve global it'll probably find a figure out a way of solving <laughs> climate change and, and by removing humans yes. right? and, and, and look you don't want to be too sort of um, no but it's a it's a true case scenario that mm. we live in and embody it. Mm. but to linger on your championing of his work because I love your description on LinkedIn one mm. of them, because you've got a couple mm. of things. The idea of uh, agreeing, you bring people to agree and disagree constructively mm. together, essentially. Mm. How do you do that? Which speaks to some of your mm. questions. <laughs> well, I've, I'm really lucky that I've got 
I've sort of wended my way to the point where I, I, I think I know what my groove is. You know, at 39, I'm like, oh, yeah, I think, I think this is my thing. Mm, and doing well, so I found that at 39. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's working well for me so far. Um, being an independent facilitator is, is one of the ways. So taking a small group of people and creating a, a, a space where they're inclined to bring their better selves to that conversation. And there's a huge amount of pre-work. But then there's also stuff in the room that you do. And I'm, I, my School of Facilitation thought is out of the International Association of Facilitators Code of Ethics, which is very much puts the facilitator as a, as a, a process, a, a mechanism person. So you don't have... You don't sort of wade into the conversation, have, you, have your own opinions about it. You create the environment in which the participants find their own ways to it. Okay. And, the, you know, an amazing facilitation is where people kind of look at each other afterwards and go, shit, that was good. We were amazing. <laughs> there was some lady, I don't even remember her, but we were great. And, and that's, that's what makes me really excited. Yeah. And I got into that because um, one of... <laughs> strangely formative period in my life, five months with the Wellington City Council uh, mm-hmm. doing community engagement on cycleway projects, including the Island Bay Cycleway. And, survived. Mm, um, and, and just seeing in community meetings where, you know, mm. we had good intentions, but the stuff we were saying and the way we'd set it up was an environment that certainly didn't, didn't encourage people's best selves to be brought to those conversations. And we, we ended up, you know, after things started going a bit toxic, we, we hired a, an independent facilitator and watching her do her work was just like, was like black magic, you know, just like a sorcerer. Like you didn't even see her hands move, but all of a sudden everybody was just kind of simmered down mm-hmm. and listening better to each other. And the way she managed the room, I was like, that's incredible, I have to learn that. And I'm just beginning my facilitating journey but that's one of that's one of the ways, and there's lots of art and science behind it. So, so many things can be, so many bad things can be avoided by the application of some really basic principles of good facilitation. Yeah. So that's magnificent. And then I have, in my latter years, sort of got more into bringing people together through the built form of our towns and cities. So if we think about our public realm, so that's all the space that is publicly owned that we're allowed to be in, how do we shape that so that it's giving to us with both hands instead of taking with one hand and giving with the other? So roads and streets are a great example. We've got an awful lot of real estate in towns and cities that is roads and streets, and it is not serving us with both hands at the moment. Um, Streets in particular as opposed to like big highways, can be places where people can interact. They, they should be really amazing forums for human exchange. Mm. And that could be just when you're walking down and you make eye contact with somebody and you keep walking. Or it could be because there are places that you want to just sit down and take a breather and look around. It could be because there's an amazing array of things to look at and do on the street. But streets as places for bumping into people and streets as places for human exchange. Mm. It's just something that I... I I have a huge amount of faith in as a way to help heal divides and just gently expose us to people who are from different walks of life. Mm. And then if you move away from the street and you go to things like uh, markets and waterfronts and pocket parks and um, sports facilities and you know, um, sort of forecourts, you know, kind of marae for, for different 
different buildings of different forms, mm. they are even potentially more powerful places for just bumping into people, having those little, very human exchanges with somebody from a different walk of life that it's impossible to do virtually. Mm. And there are some really amazing sort of unifying human uh, experiences that you can have. So laughing at a pigeon doing something weird, you know, (laughs) your kids are off doing something together and you're like, oh, look at them go. And then you're bonded Mm. to the other Carers who look after their kids or things to do with the weather or like a weird noise from somewhere. When you're physically in the same space as people, yeah, there's a real magic there. And I'm really hopeful that as we bring more people living closer together, as we need to, because that's the best way to reduce our emissions and it's better for us, mm. we can have really good bumping into spaces. So I'm interested in, I'm, I'm trying to work in a lot of very pointy-headed and technical spaces to reshape the urban fabric so it is better at bringing us together, better at just like gently exposing us to each other. Okay. That sounds like we're flashing. That's not what I mean. <laughs> well, I was... Well, <laughs> but, oh, go on, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say... It's, Long it's, answer. It's, sorry. No, it's great. It's great. We've gone from AI to... Urban design, I think it's that's fantastic. Cause it, it's not a long leap. They're, they're, no, they're not unrelated at all. And, um, yeah. in, in fact, I was talking about mass transit and whether or not we've even got our head screwed on as regards that. Mm. Yesterday with an um, incredibly talented Kiwi, he's, he's been overseas for 30-odd years, Rob Teese, he's an amazing architect mm. from Wellington originally, mm. um, and he's back here at the moment. Um, a really, really big brain on... Um, on urban design and how we've got the, mm. the design of, of New Zealand cities wrong, really. Mm. We designed it on the wrong model and, and how, to, how to think about how to get beyond that. And he said, he said in many regards, mm. we're just so far behind uh, the times and the way we're thinking about urban design here. He said, mm. he said the mere fact that we had a discussion even as recently as a couple of years ago about, a fl- about a, uh, an overpass at, at the Basin Reserve. He said, oh, yeah. he said you know, t- 25 years ago, he arrived in, in San Fran, and they're pulling mm. down all the overpasses mm-hmm. because yeah. they, they made no sense, and there were better ways to to organise traffic flows. Mm-hmm. And even you know, you cast your mind forward not very far, and you say, "Well, self drive isn't that far away. It's mm-hmm. it's it's within touching distance, mm. and self drive is going to change the nature of car ownership and the need for cars because mm. you can whistle up a car whenever you need it. It's electric and it'll take you where you need and it can collect things for you. Mm-hmm. That changes the nature of what we need in terms of mass transport. Mm. Um, and so therefore, do we need a you know a, a mass transit type scenario from the airport to, 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 to Wellington Central? Or can we actually find a way of, of having this, this fleet of electric vehicles that just move around, that, that are just whistled up? Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, there's, there, are, there are quite a few different scenarios mm which lead to quite a, um, a, a significant demonstrable change to the nature of the urban design of mm. the city. Mm. Exactly. Uh, and to your point, that changes the, the fabric of, the, of the, kind of the quadrants inside the city. Instead of having mm. vehicles going through there, mm. you no longer need to because mm. the vehicles are moving fluidly outside of those zones and the people are populating those areas. And, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, I mean, this is, uh, sorry, it's a little airy-fairy, because I'm just picking up on the fag ends from Rob's brilliance yesterday <laughs> over coffee. But um, it, 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 um, you know, it's, it's interesting to think that a lot of what we do when we're thinking ahead to what, let's say, a city like Wellington requires, mm-hmm. we're thinking in terms of today's knowledge and not thinking in terms of, of, of you know, what tomorrow offers. Mm. And so by the time we get to, get to build these things, we're sort of already out of date. Yeah. 
Uh, and I don't know how to get around that. I mean, I've got friends who've been mm. involved in let's, let's Get Well In Moving, and you know, I, I feel for them because they're, they're working with an old set of data, in a sense. And a, I would, an old vision as well. Sorry, but go on. Mm. Mm. I, would, I would total call that, but flip it round. So I think the, the great curse of New Zealand cities is the fact that we've done the vast majority of our growth in the age of the car. And when we thought mm. that the car was prosperity, and, you know, um, somebody described it, to me yesterday is sort of like a, a 1950s movie vision of modernism. And that's how we've designed our cities it's sort of, or even like the Jetsons or whatever. And because of that, we've got, we've got nothing to look back to. So we, you know, we got rid of all the Māori settlements. Um, so we don't have a, a physical memory of that. And our, we don't have a, a medieval part to our city or a, a pr- any pre-car parts to our city that we can that we can physically experience so mm-hmm. you know if, if you're a kiwi and you haven't been able to travel overseas you know to somewhere in asia or south america or europe where where streets are built for horse scale for ox scale for human scale and they work beautifully you have this really fine-grained intimate busy buzzy urban mm-hmm. fabric you kind of can't imagine how that would possibly work in new zealand because we've mm-hmm. you know we've grown up with this suburban landscape as as the landscape, and we're we're just you know we're we're at that stage with the Henry Ford quote of you know if I'd asked people what I want what they wanted they would have said a faster horse. horse. We're being asked what we want, and we're we're saying more car parking. Mm, yeah. You know, we're being asked what we want, and we're saying more roads because that's what we know and what we understand right now. Partly because in New Zealand we don't have that physical experience, that physical memory of of different shaped streets. We know bigger. We've got motorways. We, we get that. Oh, expressways, yes. But we don't. We're not comfortable yet with how to go smaller, how to go human scaled, how to go more intimate. And I think what I think is really exciting. And we don't even have to look into the future for this. We can actually go. How do we just focus on units of this size, and maybe maybe of that size too, little moving units, and take that idea that you described of of domains of a city that are the the kingdom of people you know and Auckland bless them have done a really really cool uh, circulation plan for their central city it's called access for everyone good start they're actually think about access for humans but yeah there are there are these zones and you can drive into them in your private car and you can drive out of them again but you can't drive between them you don't have that right mm. a car is is not how you should be moving around that central city you can move between them really freely on public transport, walking, biking, wheelchairing, scooting, hoverboarding, nimbusing, whatever, whatever you want. But you can't bring your two and a half ton big metal box in that you privately own and run it between those zones. And it's, it's a start, yeah? And we're hopefully going to get something like that here. We're hopefully going to get the, the council and NZTA and whoever else has influence over our city standing back and going, okay, how do we need the goods and the people to move around in the best way that gives with both hands? And let's look back or look overseas at shapes of urban space that are really awesome. Let's copy those because we have a lot of Wellington exceptionalism here. We're like, oh, no, no, we don't want a Copenhagen solution or, oh, no, we're not in San Francisco. But we're actually at the point of having forgotten that humans in this city are the same as humans anywhere else. We're made of flesh and blood. We 
understand moving objects in our landscape in the same way. We have we can cope with the same number of relationships. Mm-hmm. Solid objects are still solid objects. <laughs> like we need to come back to those principles in reshaping our city mm. before we go. Oh no no no, we're different here. We're different here. And I think there's a lot of a lot of looking back and taking those good human principles and going, ah, oh, why did this work in medieval times? You know, why why were these cities you know like Byzantium and you know why were they absolutely heaving with commerce, with activity, with productivity, with learning, with with music and arts? What you know, how did people all live and operate close together like that? And let's copy the good bits of that, and then add on top the the smart cities, the AI that helps us know when we should be shifting the load off our stormwater pipes into the stormwater retention system, for example, and when we really need to slow down some of the moving elements of the city so that we can avoid a backlog later on. Layer that on top of a humanist foundation. Mm. Here endeth the mission. Well, there's Ooh. also... A, I love that statement. <laughs> Sorry. That's we awesome. should write all that up and post it to the City Council and, and the yeah. Greater Wellington Regional Council. No, but it gives us a, a, um, a framework, a blueprint... Um, the one thing I was waiting for you to say as well is the idea of, you know, this idea of the city becoming carbon zero or neutral or, you know, all that idea of just climate mm-hmm. with the climate in it. In this. And um, luckily enough, over the last year and a half, I've been emceeing an online event called Tulo. Every month we have architects from around the globe, like 350 people every month. And I emcee this online. And it's a great platform for architects who try mm. to keep their professional development points up because they, they lose their license if they don't mm-hmm. keep their points up. So it's a great platform. And I am CS and I'm, I'm interacting with architects. I have no right to be interacting with from like BIG and Zaha Hadid and all. Why not? These, yeah, I, why not? What, because I'm talking about like parametric architecture and computational design and how CLT is at the fore. I know what their words mean now, but at the beginning I was like hanging on by my cognitive fingernails going, <laughs> I don't know what all these things mean. <laughs> But we're all like that, that most, of the yeah. time. most of the time. That's I know. why I need you. But I love well. the stretching. I love the stretching yeah. in my brain. But in that, I was going to say that what I'm hearing a lot globally is the shift from architectural practice into this more carbon light or carbon mm. zero, carbon neutral, and using computational design, whether it be AI or other mm. things, but computational design is how they frame, frame it all up, um, and getting rid of really hard problems that they don't need to deal with, which is concrete and steel, mm-hmm. um, and moving into CLT, which is cross-laminated timber, timber. Mm-hmm. Renewable, renewable source and all these things. And in Sweden, they're building multi-high mm-hmm. skyscrapers of this stuff. It's mm-hmm. not just like, oh, it's nice just for a walk. No, you mm-hmm. can build proper. Mm-hmm. And here in Wellington, we're still doing the same type of buildings. And we're not thinking really uniquely and radically creatively about just our urban the permission that we give to people that influence our urban infrastructure, mm. which are, a lot of the time are the developers mm-hmm. who the city council grants permits to, to build in areas. They have to, uh, but they're not then putting within those permits saying, well, you, if you can build here, certainly you can build whatever you want within these parameters, but it has to be carbon zero, please. Mm. They're not, and, they, and it has to be maybe a bit of solar punk in there, which is a new movement about, you know, really taking this renewable idea to the extreme, you know, and greening all of that. So yes to everything you said. Mm. I'm just inserting a layer mm. of radical creativity in there around being a bit punk, around maybe turning the city into this 
I don't know, really climate friendly place mm -hmm. that accelerates in the next 20 years beyond our expectations that then shows the other people. When you talk about like looking at Cape Copenhagen uh, as an example, because it's a port city, you know, mm -hmm. it's obviously brought up because similar size and all that stuff. But um, why at, at any point globally, I never hear Wellington used as an example of good practice. Now, to me, that's the, <laughs> yeah. that's the biggest challenge, right? How do we become an example of good practice globally mm. in terms of our city, in terms of the people engagement, the scale build mm. engagement, right through to the climate engagement as well? That'd I'm, be a great challenge. I'm hanging out to ask you a, couple, a, a question because I, I Jump in, Google stalked you a wee bit and I was like, oh, I really want to know this thing. Oh, the one, the one. I, the <laughs> no, no, it'll be an easy one because I bet people ask it for you all the time. <laughs> the the one point of hope and future pride that I would say about Wellington and I'll say Te Upoko Tika now, not just Wellington City, I suspect that we're going to see some really exciting and, uh, yeah, edgy, interesting, challenging, mm. like pushing the front edge kind of development out of iwi collaborations. Mm. I think that's where that's where things are going to change dramatically and I'm super excited about that. But the, the question the question I was really interested in looking at looking at your business and the just the extraordinary layers of things that you've got around this one little idea of a product i'm i'm super interested in in how we how we how much we're expecting consumers to do and consumer power versus changing the systems in which the consumers have to operate mm. and i I watched the story of stuff on YouTube a while back. Are you familiar with the, yeah. And I thought, man, that's a really good point. And I kind of flipped a little bit from putting effort into my own recycling at home and trying to be super diligent about that to going, bugger it, I'm going to go and, and find some groups that are, you know, that are pushing for zero waste at a more systematic level. And I'll just give them some money and stop freaking out so much about whether I've got lids that go on the right thing or the other thing. And and then I see somebody who's who's putting in an insane amount of creativity and innovation and ingenuity into into things that are focused on a consumer product. I'm like, wow, maybe I've maybe I've got the balance wrong again. So what's the theory of change? Uh, no, you've got the balance wrong. I, look, I, I think it's not about perfection; it's about progress. And I think too often we we think in terms of. Um, betterment being about this this moonshot for perfection and perfection just doesn't mm. bloody exist so we should just just let it go right all we can genuinely hope for as individuals and as communities and as nations and as global citizens is progress right and, yeah. and progress because of the human condition means you know a few steps forward and a couple back and a few steps forward and you, you sideways know, it's, it's, it's iterative it's not right. it's not linear mm. um, but I think you can you can set off with um, with uh, really solid intent and be prepared to do a lot of hard work at the outset mm. to make it easier for people to to achieve those those incremental gains. Mm. So try and I'll put that in perspective. Um, you know, the what we're trying to do with wild you're talking about wild clean. Mm. What we're trying to do with wild clean is is is, is look, we want to eliminate single use plastic. Right, let's mm. just start there. Um, and that's a big and hoary and audacious goal. But let's say we'll start by eliminating it from homes. 
because I think that's the sort of the most personal place where people get to experiment and try and fail, and mm. it's okay because their friends don't see them try and fail, and so they're, they're sort of okay with the yeah. failure, and they can keep trying. So let's just kind of start there. So the, the, the goal originally wasn't actually to start a cleaning company per se. It was to find a mechanism whereby we could start helping people to positively change behaviours. Because writ large, a whole bunch of people changing their behaviours gently around one element of their lives from their homes. And let's not duck the idea that... Um, you know, it's really the middle class globally that's got to fix the, the plastics problem because yeah. we've kind of created it with yeah. our consumerism, so we've got yeah. to kind of fix it, and we have the wherewithal to do so. And the most ubiquitous thing that we have as 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 a, as a cohort globally is a home, right? So, we, yeah. so if if that if all of us kind of lean in and change our behaviours around one element of our homes, the effect of that change in behaviour mm. will shatter the system, inverted mm. the system, right? Mm. So right now you've got. People, people and businesses respond to incentives. So right now you've got a massive um, amount of single-use plastic waste created by um, packaging companies, yep. by big cleaning companies, pharmaceutical companies, because they are incented to sell us ever more single-use plastic full of, full of water, which we can get from our tap, yep. and chemicals which we don't actually need, because mm. our grandma did fine with vinegar and a wire brush, frankly. Um, so they're incented to, to, to sell us more and more of that stuff, right? And the only way they're going to stop is if we say, actually, we don't, don't need it anymore. Because mm-hmm. then they're going to respond to that incentive. They're mm. going to say, okay, well, whoa, we need now to, to innovate to recapture yeah. that, that market, right? So it, it's really, that, that was the thinking behind Wild Clean. Mm. So it's like, okay, look, it's not about cleaning per se. It's about eliminating single-use plastic. Right? It's unmucking the king world. So let's I love that slogan. It's yeah, great. Well, let's start <laughs> with cleaning and then yeah. we'll just... Yeah. And, we'll, and we'll spin it out from there. Uh, but let's okay. not do um, only part of the job because that's the other thing that drives me nuts, yeah. right? When you look at other you know, companies that are seeking to, to change behaviour, seeking mm-hmm. to change systems, they often do a bit of a job. Mm-hmm. And, um, and what that quite often winds up being represented as is the company creating other problems, you know, mm-hmm. other downstream waste. So we said right at the outset, okay, look, we're going to eliminate single-use plastic, but let's not create other packaging issues. Let's not create more <laughs> chemicals. Let's not let's let's try and eradicate all of these things. So and and each of those was a rabbit hole down which we had to descend yeah. and figure out. And none of them are perfect. Mm. We're not perfect on anything. Mm. But we're a ton better on most of those things because we've tried to cover off all of those bases. So for example, yeah. rather than what most companies do, they make you responsible for yep. the packaging waste. Yep. Right, we're going to sell you a whole lot of stuff and, and, yep. and waste, mm. and now you've got to deal with that waste. And mm. they're like, thanks yep. very much for your cash. It's not our fault if your council doesn't recycle well right. enough. Right. And, Sorry, and mate. And, yeah. and, boy, have companies done that over the years. They've said, oh, it's not, you know, it's, it's like the firearms debate in America. Oh, it's, it's, not, it's not the packaging. It's the, oh, yeah, yeah. It's the individual. Yeah. Guns, Guns don't, don't kill people. People, people kill bullets. people. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right? It's, it's all that sort of nonsense. They push that. It's, it's oh, gaslighting yeah. at, at, at its greatest. Right. I thought of it like that. So, yeah. so we mm. said, okay, why don't, why don't we figure out a way of not creating any downstream waste with packaging? Mm. If we could make it home compostable, mm. 
people can put it in their garden, they can put mm-hmm. it in their, in their... Then, you know, it doesn't create landfill, mm. which is a massive issue. It doesn't create the need for, you know, massive overflowing recycling bins. Mm. And none of it will be perfect, but it's a step in the right direction. And that's mm-hmm. the point about progress versus perfection. Mm. So some people won't want to compost. They won't want to throw stuff on their gardens. They will want to put it in their recycling bin. Yeah. Mm. And they should feel fine about that. Mm-hmm. It's okay. So, so that right? system you're already tackling as well, which you mentioned earlier. It's not just another thing that does thing a little bit better. It's incrementally moving all the, the needles. Mm. It's mm. not just does that, but it also does this, it also does that. Right. It's like a little bit of a, yeah, a, a domino effect yeah. you've created there. And, and along with uh, something you did previous to that, I, you know, because you've been spent some time overseas in the last couple of years, so we lost contact for a while, but I kept an eye on what you were doing with NoHo. Oh, yeah. Which was felt like a precursor to what you're doing now because you were experimenting with mm. this extraction from the sea, as yep. I understand it, the yep. plastics, turning them into a Fishing product nets, for yeah. use, mm. for long mm. use, which was that chair. Mm. Is that still going or was that yeah, an experiment yeah, to go into this? No, or? totally. There right. was a, a, a spin-out of um, a form-way furniture. Um, oh, cool. that, a bunch yeah. of incredibly clever um, product designers and they, had, they designed this amazing you know, ergonomic chair mm. Uh, designed sort of the way we live our modern lives, and and and, and the the bit that um, the reason I got involved is because I, I I was fascinated at the time, and I remain so about the idea of turning all this waste, finding finding an outlet for this waste. Yeah, mm. I'm also fascinated by preventing the waste. That's why I've come and done the wild clean. Right. Yeah. 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 But at that time, I was thinking, okay, how do we how do we find a way of repurposing this mm. this waste? And forty. Six percent, roughly fifty percent of the plastic washing around the ocean is fishing paraphernalia of one sort or the other. And it's, is it? Yeah, really. Um, yeah, wow. yeah, remarkably. So, so the, the the great gyre of the size of a massacre is mostly. There are a few gyres, sadly. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. guys, 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 guys. I don't know, gyres, but yeah, yeah. It's full of full of um, fishing, uh, fishing, fishing paraphernalia, nets wow. and tackle and buoy, and mm. and they're often made predominantly from nylon six, which is yeah. a really good. Verticomus polymer, in the sense that it can be almost infinitely repurposed. Mm. Right. Whereas a lot of the lower grade polymers, they degrade under mm. salt and solar, and, mm. and, they, and they've got to be downgraded and eventually just burnt. Uh, and some of them should just be outlawed, like MLP, um, yeah. multi uh, laminate um, plastic, which is just chippy wrappers. Right? Oh, there's yeah. There's no. Yeah. There's no. Nothing you do with them, home. Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. And so they just get. So because they can't be typically recycled, they yeah. just get left. Right. Yep. No one wants to gather them up. No one wants to deal yeah, with them. No one yeah. wants to process them. So you know, again, the packaging companies just shunting all this stuff down the mm. down the line and expecting us to deal with them. So yeah, I was I was interested in how how we could deal with waste, turn mm. use commerce if you like to disrupt mm. um, an area of of consumer need by using waste to turning waste into or trash into treasure. Mm. Lovely. Mm. And that really came from this kind of epiphany, I guess. We. Um, uh, you know, I, I was taking a break after after running Coffee Supreme. I was a p- burnt out, to be honest. Yeah. And um, and uh, we decided to take a little family holiday. And, and my wife and I are really keen on sort of you know giving the kids kind of you know world um, mm. education. We, we're privileged mm. to be able to do that. Mm. And um, so we went to Indonesia and we were traveling around and living in different places. And 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 we thought, oh, we'll teach the kids to surf while we're while we're there. Mm. Uh, which again, massively privileged to be able to do that, um, and it was an amazing sort of family moment. You know, all of us kind of popping up on a wave, you know, surfing and, and on a so crap cool. surface. So the mere fact that I could get on a wave <laughs> was good. Um, so popping up on the wave, and then just 
standing back and going, well, why is it that their, their kids are paddling through just you know, yep. plastic bags to get yep. back yeah. out on the wave? Yep. It's just horrific. Yep. And so it was just this kind of process of, okay, there must be a way for us to deal with this, this problem. Yeah. And it's going to take this complex matrix of approaches. It's going to take education. It's going to mm-hmm. take inspiration. It's going to take um, you know, uh, you know, regulation, to get, mm-hmm. regulate some of that stuff out mm-hmm. of existence. Mm-hmm. But we've also got to educate people that there is another way. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got to help those n- nations that are more impoverished, those impoverished mm-hmm. communities, to deal with this stuff that the first world has, has, has created. So that's what led, to, led me to the Noho thing. And then gotcha. midway through Noho and in the middle of COVID in America, I'm thinking, oh, we can do some more. We can do more on this. <laughs> yeah. We can double down. <laughs> Why not? That to, that's magnificent. Wild. That's wild. magnificent. Well, there's well, a I'm lovely Genesis story as well there. And while I was listening to you state what we have to do around legislation and movement stuff, um, I was expecting you also to say we need new innovations on materials as well. Mm. We need to start thinking very Mm. differently about non-extraction methodology and turning them into something that doesn't go away but just hurts. But also start good, not start wrong, and then get wronger as we go along. So so this is one of the, I mean, you'll be familiar with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, you know, Mm. British sailor, and and she set up this foundation to, you know, really just try and remediate the the ocean. Um, uh, And she is... One of her famous quotes is, you know, 80% of waste is designed into products and businesses at the outset. Yeah. Mm. Yep. And, you know, I, I saw that quote a couple of years ago and I thought, well, the inverse must also be the case, right? Mm-hmm. We must be able to design that stuff out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you can design it in, you must be able yep. to design it out. It's just going to take yep. more work, you know, mm. you've got to do the mahi, you've got you to be able to design the stuff out. Mm. So design is the... The design's that, that, the, the skeleton key to unlock all of this, but yeah. we should be able to design waste out of that stuff and create mm. better products in a better way. Um, and, um, you know, uh, I, I think um, we, we've got to think in terms of, in terms of um, uh, regeneration. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, yeah, there was a lovely quote I saw the other day, which was um, on a scale of, um, zero to 500 years, how much do you really need that thing? And, <laughs> yeah, and I thought, great. oh, that's a great way of thinking about it, right? Yeah. It's just Lovely like, do you really, yeah, mm. right? Do, yeah. do you mm. really need that, 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 that material good, A? Mm. And B, um, what happens to it at, at end of life? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So when you're buying that thing, you've got to be sort of thinking, you know, whether it's a pair of jeans or a T-shirt mm. or, yep. or a you know, car. What, gizmo what, or what, what happens yeah. at, at its yeah. end of life? And if mm. you start thinking in those terms, you start going, ooh. Yeah. I don't think I need half this. Well, stuff. there's a couple of things there I'd love to react to. One is the the 500 year that you mentioned, just because mm. we had a lovely chap earlier on in our creative welly reign, uh, uh, Paul Aitkins. He was then the uh, chief executive of Zealandia, mm-hmm. where he spoke at length around the 500, 500 year, year plan, plan. and yep. 500 strategy, which mm. sounded cute when I first read it. But no, this is an actual strategy, a policy mm. kind of directive, which is amazing. And I think we should ask more of our organisations, what's your 500-year plan? That would mm. turn some heads and also create some uh, neural pathways that wasn't there before in terms of thinking mm. differently. Iwi are doing this, it. Pardon? Iwi are doing well, that's, it. Yeah. This is a really yeah. interesting point. I was just going to mm. say that. It's exactly what I was... Sorry to cut no, in. No, no. Okay. Um, so, you, you know, um, I freely admit that I, I grew up in a kind of centre-right, middle-class household in New Zealand mm-hmm. and the whole, you know growing up as a kid the whole concept of you know rahui and all those things they sounded like hokum 
bunkum to me, you know, growing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't care now, as I hit 50, that uh, as I talk about things like, glowingly, like things like kaitiakitanga, mm-hmm. and how brilliant, actually, when you think about it, all of those kind of principles of, of te ao Māori mm-hmm. were and, mm-hmm. and are. I don't care if people call me woke, because I take that as a compliment. Mm-hmm. I think, great, I've actually... You're telling me that I've woken up to think, yeah. oh, I'm fine with it. But the, the um, you know, kaitiakitanga, guardianship of the natural world, Gosh, yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Heritanga, making better things in a better way. Mm. Yep. You know, manakitanga, bring, uh, you, you rise by bringing others with you. The, mm. These are great concepts for, for mm. how to live. And, we, and when you think about where they came from, they make absolute sense because back mm. when, these, when they, they were being formulated in Te Ao Māori, they were being formulated because it was a choice between life and death. So you put a rahui on that stream because it had been fished out, mm. and if you didn't put a rahui on it, mm. then there wasn't going to be mm. there weren't going to be fish mm. to feed the, the, the balance the community. Right, so you balance the. Mm. These are things we can learn from. You know, a lot of indigenous peoples globally had great principles around these things that actually mm. we should draw from. So you know, you say sorry, just no, no. wild clean. That was part of the thing with wild clean. It's like okay, let's not create any more any waste. But actually, what about if we were negative mm. on stuff? Yeah. What about That's if, super exciting. What if we yeah. could be waste negative? And, and people look at me strangely when I say that, but I say, what about if you set up every business with the idea that actually not only do you not create downstream waste, but you actually remediate some of the waste that already mm-hmm. exists. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we figured out a way of doing that with plastics, so we're plastic negative, yeah. and we figured out a way of doing that with carbon, so we're carbon negative. Mm. Um, and I'm really, really wedded to this idea that actually companies can set out with these far better... Mm. ways of thinking about the way they deliver their goods and services to people mm. better in the sense of um, the future of the world. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm weirded to the idea that we all can. Having said all that, I've been helicoptered into businesses to run businesses and rewire them, and it is immensely difficult to rewire an existing course, yeah. business to, to, to make some of this happen within an existing yeah. business. Really hard. Yeah. So in the direction of a rolling stone is much harder than just start anyone tough. in the right direction. Exactly, right, right yeah. exactly. Definitely. Mm. You were about to jump in? Oh, I'm really, I'm just super interested in, in like several things that you've, you've said are coming together for me. And I'm, I'm really interested in, you said earlier, you know, we don't need a lot of the stuff that's designed into products at the mm. moment. So the chemicals and the packaging and so forth. And, and you said, you know, our, our grandmas may do with white vinegar and a, and a wire brush. <laughs> yeah. Being smart ass when I say that, but they do. Yeah, yeah. it's weird. And then there's this there's this really interesting idea. I didn't do enough economics, but um, the environmental Kuznets curve that says basically you you develop, you become more developed, and as you develop, you become more prosperous, and as you become more prosperous, then you are able to invest in luxuries like environmental care. So only until you've reached a pr- yeah, and so you are not expected, or you should not be putting your energy and resources into looking after the environment until you reach a certain point of development, uh, i.e. often income. Like it's quite tied in with, the, with this idea oh, of income. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So up until that point, it's a luxury. And, of course, right. where exactly is that point? You know, <laughs> how, how developed is enough? And that, mm. that uh, sort of uh, presumes that there aren't finite limits on our natural world, which, of course, is bullshit. <laughs> but, you know, coming back to this idea that, that uh, this idea of progress and that you know the, the the 1950s and the post-war and the, the the amazing development of plastics, and all, lots of things that previously weren't in plastic were now in plastic. And the, mm. the idea that you can get a pre-made thing, you can take the wrapping off, throw it away, and it's ready to go, from cleaning materials to 
shirts to, to you know, pre-made dinners, all of that stuff. The, a huge thing it did then was it liberated women. It freed women's time. Huh. Waste saved time. Waste saved women time, mostly, because so much of that stuff right. was households. Right. And one of the things that I keep hearing when, you know, lot bang on about doing things in a better way, that's all very well. I have to work four jobs. And there's no pub- decent public transport where I live, so I have to drive between all the four jobs and I have to pick up my kids and all this stuff. I do not have time. So waste saves time and that time is more valuable if you're poorer, especially. Mm-hmm. And and I have no, I've got, this isn't coming to any kind of zingy revelatory point, it's coming to a question. <laughs> How do we, have you got any thoughts about this idea that waste saves time, which is extra precious for people who are less privileged and how do we how do we change that that you you're forced to have quite a heavy environmental footprint if you're poorer flaps arms around uselessly that's a big question um i i I think there's no question that um that um middle class and above globally particularly in the first world, right, Um, have both the responsibility and the capacity, capability, financial and and otherwise, to to cure some of these big problems. Mm. And a big emphasis on responsibility. Because, uh, you know, if you you think back, really the the, the lion's share of plastics that we, you know, that the world has seen have been created since the the 50s. Mm. You know, there was Bakelite before that, but, you know, Um, and it was created as a way of for the big oil companies to do something with the slurry that came out the end of petrochem oh, production. Hmm. I didn't know that. They figured out there's all the slurry out the bottom <laughs> of the petrochem hierarchy, yeah. and they could move it over to the to the plastics factory, and they could turn it into more products. So it's just a way of monetizing more of the of the raw pro- fossil fuel, really, hmm. simplistically spoken. But you get the idea. Um, but only 1.2% of all estimated, of all of the plastic that's ever been created, is, has been recycled and is still in use. 1.2% has been repurposed and is still in use. The rest has been buried, has been burned. Um, so, you know, we've been remarkably wasteful in the way we've used what is actually a remarkable material. We just used it exceedingly poorly. Mm-hmm. Mm. I don't have any issue particularly with using it in a way that is designed for the long term mm-hmm. and designed in a, in a circular, with circularity in mind. Mm-hmm. So using it and building it in time, you can pr- take it out of that building and you can recycle it and go again. Or, okay. you know, um, uh, I mean, I was waffling the other day, as I frequently do, about the idea of, you know, wind, uh, wind farms. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the problems we've got with wind farms right now is that 25 years in, they're starting to, the original mm. things are starting to atrophy, mm. and they're sort of they're pulling down these big blades, but it's uneconomic to remove them from the wind farm. So these big blades are sitting <laughs> at the sit base, there. Yeah, wow. sit there and, and, and corrode quietly mm. in the sun. Um, and I said, wouldn't it be amazing if we could figure out a way of extruding blades in situ? You know, taking all this mm. waste plastic, mm. big extruders, they go out there and extrude a big blade, and they whack it up there. I mean, I don't. It's complete wampum, really, but. But I like the idea that plastic idea. could be used in yeah. those ways, yeah. right? You're just re- reusing it. So only certain parts of the 
of the hierarchy can be used yeah. in that way, is my understanding scientifically. The, the problem you can, you can, you, we come back to is, is this question of um, waste saves time, and I, I don't deny that. Um, and but I think we've actually created the the perception that it saves time. Um, and I'll use it as an, as an example of where where that's the case and where I think we've gone wild. It's an example of going wildly astray. And you know, living in America, I was in this sort of shared office space, and and, and they'd put on food, and you could sort of help yourself to some of this food. And I went to the fridge on my on my first day and looked in there, and I and I could not believe what I was seeing. There was a stack about twelve high of packets, plastic packets, with four. Um, hard-boiled eggs. What? That had been, that had been, you know, deshelled, I mean, boiled. Yeah. Hard-boiled, deshelled, and then packaged in this plastic, <laughs> so that I right. could then take it out and cut open the package. Open the packet. Yeah. And, like, I, and I thought, and I thought that's just yeah. the ve- that is to me that is the apogee of foolishness. I'm oh, thinking God. those things come in their own packaging. In their own beautiful package. It's, it's it's nature's provided that we yeah. don't need now. To your point, just using the egg as an example, and it's a terrible example, would it save anyone really a great deal of time? Maybe just two minutes between the difference between cutting open that packet, feeding somebody with that cold hard-boiled egg, and boiling the egg for yourself, hard-boiling it for yourself. And probably a lot less costly just to use the one in nature's mm-hmm. covering rather than mm-hmm. actually buying the one in plastic. So, I, I mean, that's... a it's probably a trite example, but mm-hmm. I, I don't know that... I mean, I, I think at the time, yeah. back in the 50s mm. and the 60s, I absolutely take your point. Yeah, mm. I can absolutely see the point. Save time back then. Create, it was, we were exchanging waste for time. Mm. I'm not sure that the, that's the case now. I'd agree. I think, yeah. we've free- I think we've got a bit obsessed about it, and we're down to these mar- tiny marginal units of time, yeah. which actually mean nothing. And your question about it, in 500 years, you know, do I really need this thing? What am I going to do with these four seconds, yep. actually? And that was know? going to be my next point, is what do we do with that time? Because we use our time way more poorly, arguably, in, our, in now than our parents' generation <laughs> yeah. did. You know, I remember my father saying, um, you know, the way, the way kids spell love is T-I-M-E. <laughs> and it's a great quote, right? It's just like, they just, kids just want to spend parents, time yeah. with you. Huh. You know, that's yeah. really what they want. That's really cute. They can just sit that with you cute. and they'd be really, they'll be really happy. Yeah. They just want time. So, but we, we tend to sort of, we do the opposite thing these days. Instead of saying, okay, I want time with, with my child, so I'm going to do this really quickly, and then I've got mm. more time over here. Yeah. We, we go, I'm going to do this thing really quickly so I can do more of that stuff. I'm going to do more emails. I'm going to yep. do more yeah. phone calls. Yep. I'm going to, you know, and, and, and I'll just push out that important mm. time, that product, productive thinking time mm-hmm. or that productive personal Relational time, time out. Mm. just going to push it out. So we don't mm. actually use that time we make up any mm. Particularly well, I think. Mm. I have a a couple of comments to make because I Mm. want to bring it back to a question I have to both of you, Mm. which came out of something I watched, which will speak to everything you've already already spoken about. Um, One of my heroes, which was the first question, Mm. uh, real life, is a lady called Neri Oxman. We didn't Mm. ask you. And Neri is, Mm. pardon? We didn't ask you. I know, so rude. Um, We'll get it in the edit. Neri Oxman is an MIT professor lady who is just very impressive. And, E-R-I? Uh, Neri, uh, N- 
E-R-I, yeah, and then Oxman, A-X-M-A-N. I love that you make a note, it's not just going to watch this back and take it down, but it's great. True, I hadn't thought of it. It's fine though. But she just came out with a kind of a retrospective of her work, and it's called Nature Times or X Humanity. And one of the big, couple of big statements she makes in sharing her five big projects that she's worked on, which is all about material ecology or material fabrication, coming up with new materials from nature, essentially, mm-hmm. or biophilia is another kind of word for it. Uh, and she's doing great stuff like, you know, working in tandem with silkworms to produce mm-hmm. these biospheres. And mm-hmm. just anyway, watch the documentary. A couple of things she said in that. One was that we've reached uh, a point in our humanity where the amount of stuff that we've created, whether it be plastics or other things, are actually now tipped over the biomass of the world. Mm. Right? So we produce more man-made or mm. person-made things than the world, nature. Right? Mm. And she kind of concludes in this whole kind of piece about her work with a, kind of a, a statement and a call to arms for other designers out there. Mm. She's a designer at heart, really. Uh, which is that we, we need a new brief. And our brief should come from nature. Mm. And our clients should be nature. So if we move forward with any, anything that we do, with the idea that we serve two masters here, yes, we have this, you know, whomever's paying us to do whatever mm. it is for them and with them and in collaborations. Uh, but we also should have this idea of, well, nature is also our client here. Mm. And what do we need to then do and create to serve that as a client as well? That as a proposition going forward, how does that inform what you think about your work and are you already doing it? You go. First. <laughs> um, oh, look, I, well, there's two answers to that. One is, um, yeah, you're right. We, that's kind of where we're, that's right where we are. It's exactly there. It's, it's, it's saying, um, we, we've got to do the work now. We've mm-hmm. got to do the work um, in a way that is consistent with um, the, the, the planet as we would wish it to be. Because yeah. it's sure as shit not right now. So mm-hmm. as, as we would wish it to be in the future. And, and I, I use, as my motivation, I just use my North Star, which is my kids. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I, I, I want to try and build a, a better planet for them. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I always think in one for many terms, right? Mm-hmm. Lots of people don't have the time, the the capacity, the capability, the wherewithal to, 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 to do this. So let's give them some tools, right? Mm-hmm. So let's think in terms of creating tools for, for people. Then you get a one for many you know, response to this thing. You get, it, you get impact. That's how you get impact. So I absolutely think that is how we should be thinking. Could you, could you just unpack me when you say you create a tool? What kind of a tool? Oh, like while clean, we're trying to sort of create a, a, a way for people to change, to gently I change see. their behaviours. Yep. Um, and, you know, each home has this amount of impact, but mm. a whole lot of homes together has yeah. this amount of impact, and that can change not just the amount of waste the weight that we're creating, mm. but it can change the system because it can force the system to change. Nice. Changes you. the man, changes the system. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. No, no, not at mm. all. I can't remember what my second answer was. Now, I had a second one. Keep that in mind, Dan. About that. Sorry, <laughs> that was yours? what I was worried about. I just wanted to understand that. <laughs> no, no, no. It'll pop back in tools. now. I've got the memory of a goldfish. Um, feel, feel free to interrupt me before <laughs> right answering the question. I am. I, I balked initially at, at the idea of client, and and then I and it 
the reason I balked at that is that I, I, I believe very strongly that how the words we use shape how we think and they frame how we see the world and that in turn shapes our behavior and our next bit of thinking. And I'm getting increasingly discomforted by, by use of consumer and sort of corporate language for describing citizens of the planet and other humans who we are just interacting with. And it really chills me to the bone hearing a lot of government departments talking about clients and citizens. And I'm like, oh, you you stop that right now. (laughs) We have no choice but to consume your services, actually. And this is part of a social contract. And go back and read your philosophers. But the idea of, um, I hope I didn't move the chair in the wrong place. Um, <laughs> the, the idea of saying nature is our client actually just acknowledges the, the extraordinary power of commerce and the, the capitalist impulse, which is, which is the, really the, the lifeblood of change making right now. And I don't like that, but, but it doesn't have to be bad. I think the, the, there are, inherent to the dna of the modern company are some pathologies Mm. and if we change some parts of that dna like the idea that shareholders all shareholders have to give a crap about is their dividend you know that little pathology if we change that and change some other other things then this idea we we can we can reprogram commerce and we can reprogram capitalism well and and maybe it's that idea of okay bringing nature in as the client that's just harnessing that system as it is so maybe I should get off my high horse a little bit. No, no, no. And it was in but, context that she's an architectural designer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that's and that's very of... potent for her. The client is everything, right? Yeah. yeah. The other, so the other, another way of framing that perhaps is something that um, a, a mate of mine wrote about or did a lecture on. Um, Kara Pukatapu wrote a lovely piece a few years ago that said, essentially, why are we, why are we talking about resource management, natural resource management, we should be talking about coexistence because we are not, we, we are another species on this planet. Mm. We are part of the ecosystems. Yes. We have incredibly destructive power over those ecosystems, but it, as soon as we start thinking of ourselves as separate and apart and above and superior, yeah. and we can just go and colonize another planet, we're, we're kind of fucked basically. Mm. So we have, to, we have to no longer start thinking about managing resources with our great insights and our powers we should think about how can we coexist Mm. and that notion of coexistence i found immensely potent because it you know you can even take it to a really prosaic example so water you know how do we coexist with water and how do we coexist with water in our towns and cities in in climate change what does that look like it looks like going actually the river's going to need to do what the river's going to do because physics so let's stop having multi-bisquillion dollar properties right up to the edge and putting a vast amount of public money into engineering to control a river. Let's have some meanders that will naturally take the flood energy out that mm-hmm. will allow us to have much greater water filtration of the runoff and all those things. That's more of a coexistence approach to yeah. living with nature, humans ex nature. And I'm, you know, the water example is a good one. And I'm reminded of hearing a a German water engineer many years ago saying, you know, we Germans have led the world in 
engineering rivers uh, to, to control them, and now we are leading the world in de-engineering rivers because <laughs> we've realised that that's <laughs> they push back. the wrong way to go. Yeah. Right. yeah, And we just create immense hazards, you know, a hazard being a natural phenomenon plus a whole bunch of people yeah. who've come to put themselves in danger of it. And we've created those hazards from a natural phenomenon because of the way we've chosen to try and manage that resource. So thinking about nature yeah. as a client, I think, is, is almost still a little bit, a little bit arrogant mm -hmm. because it's, it's, yeah, I mean, a client can't come and destroy the office that you're working from. But I suppose it does <laughs> give it power, could. right? You think yes. about the client oh, yeah. as the, yeah, yeah. the brief holder or maker and the thunder. I'm a recidivist pedant, so, you know. But no, no, no I love the pushback <laughs> and that, that subtle change around just the, the, the language around mm. management mm. versus coexistence. Just being aware of yeah, yeah, the words we totally. use and the way, and the way they frame things. That's where things. the power comes from in this mm. world. Yeah. Has your second point come back to you? It is. Yes. Yeah. Go. Yeah, remarkably. They don't normally come back to me. but um, No, the, the second point was... Um, the the um, the issue, of course, you've got right is that um, people respond to incentives. Uh, we humans are all about self-interest. Yeah. Uh, even when they they're not, they are. You know, even when they purport not to be, they are. You know, you know, it's just that's how we're wired. Mm. It's a sort of survival species survival type thinking that's hardwired in, into us. So. The incentives part, I think, is key. Um, uh, you know, in in a in the states, for example, you can incorporate a company as a, as a PBC, public benefit corporation, mm -hmm. and it requires that you um, crystallise in your constitution the benefit you're going to provide to X, and you can frame frame up what that is right? okay. to the to the public. Basically, we don't have any construct like that in, in New Zealand, for mm. example. Um, but actually we should, and, and, and uh, the, the entity that's leading the way in this kind of thinking globally is B Corp. Right? Yeah. They're, they're, yeah. And yeah. they're doing so much research on it, and, and they're learning constantly with every single company that goes through the B Corp mm. process, and we're going through it right now, mm. um, you know, a bit early probably, but we're still trying to go through it. But you know, run, awesome. one of yeah. the reasons why we're going through it is because it's such a good format and formula and mm. challenge, it makes you think at every step, oh, God, we're not doing that, we should probably do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's but there's no legal framework in New Zealand um, for, mm. which crystallises those kinds of principles. Now that is one place that we should look, right? To, mm. to, yeah. Because um, we should actually, if we really want to create, we want New Zealand and New Zealand mm. citizens and New Zealand companies to be at the forefront of course correcting, remediating the planet, mm. and creating a better uh, world for New Zealanders and for you know, global citizens. Then actually. We just got to accept, to your point before, that commerce is the is the is the engine that makes the world go round, mm. and it's actually the place to start. That's mm, the place mm, to, mm. to make change. Mm. That's, that's why I'm kind of interested in the idea of creating companies that that yeah. that, that create yep. change. And the reason I'm interested in companies rather than charities is because, and I and I, you know, I've got a friend mm. who's got an extraordinary charity. She's an extraordinary individual. Um, so they can cash treadwell, unbelievable. You know, mm. she's phenomenal. Um, but you know, I look at what they do, and I and I, I feel for her because it seems like to me she spends eighty percent of her brilliance yeah. trying to get money in the door. Mm. Whereas if mm. the, the, a commercial engine that sort of happens because that's how yeah. how it continues it's to grow. Yeah, right? right. So there's there's one element. To, but this, but I think actually we need to change the construct of commercial entities in New Zealand so that there mm. is a requirement, mm. a requirement 
not to create waste. And if you do, there's a penalty for it. So if you're a packaging could company, be a company what that's heresy. packaging. So this is so. So then, I, so I've mentioned this recently <laughs> to somebody. I deliberately mentioned it to somebody, a friend of mine who is the other end, other end of the political, and he, he reacted with horror mm. to that. And he said, he said, this is just like the, the mandates. It's just like the mandates. Right. Oh, and I said, and I said, mm. you're anti-mandate. Yeah, I'm anti-mandate. And I said, do you drive a car? Mm. He said, yeah. And I said, do you drive on the left or the right? He said, the left. And I said, mandate. Mandate. I said, do you stop at stoplights? I said, mandate. can you swing your arms right now? He said, yes. I said. At what point does that right stop? He said, what do you mean? I said, it stops when you thump my nose, mm. right? So you can swing your arms all you want. Mm. But if you hit me, mm. then you are censured for that, penalised for that. Mm. That's a mandate. We live within a set of mandates that's called the rule of law. Mm. It's why we have in New Zealand the world's least corrupt. The, Enforceable the, the contracts, all of those nice right. things. So yeah. we live within mandates. Just get over it. Right, and we need mandates, and these sorts of mandates can actually define the future mm. of New Zealand and New Zealanders and the future of the world. And I don't mm. think we should shy away from the idea mm. I love that we've it. always been a social democracy. Let's put these things into play. Into play. We've, you know, mm. could I offer maybe a third third way there as well to complement and almost like um, if you were to, to become a B Corp in New mm. Zealand, mm. Um, a, a recognised company, but now a B Corp as well, you pay less tax. I was just going to go there. You know, it's yeah. just a simple lever that could also be changed, mm. which makes it attractive now for other companies to go, hold on a minute, we, mm. you, you mean we can pay if we just do better? Mm. for the? Yeah, okay, let's, let's explore that for a team, especially if they're at scale. So a bit of little carrot, a little bit of stick. Yeah, mm. and that's that influence. And people, mm. I think, uh, only change. And everything is driven by humans. We talk about capitalist and capitalism and stuff like that. Well, still, we still have to put our hand in a pocket, take out the card, own money to buy. Mm. We still have agency and mm-hmm. individuals decide whether to build companies or not. Mm. So then coming back to a very anthropological kind of lens, how do you change humans in terms of behavior and influence and, mm. you know, that carrot or stick? And I do think it comes down to three things. And that is you either threaten someone. Very quickly, they'll change their behavior if they're threatened with a gun in their face. Or, some, or you'll lose your job if you don't do that. Right? There's, a, there's a threat, an outcome that is not good for them if they don't do something or do something. Right? Mm-hmm. The second one is the opposite. That you incentivize them. Right? Mm-hmm. Pay you more money if mm-hmm. you do that bad job. Okay, I still think it's horrible, but I'm going to get more money. You know, keep doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, or you incentivize them by association. You know, become part of our crew, you're cool and done with the kids, you know, whatever it is. And a third one, I think, is more lasting, but the harder to do, and is to inspire people. Mm. Get to their heart, not their head, you know, get their spirit, not their ego, and try to really double down on what it is to be a, a, a species, which we are, humans are a species, and we are distinct because we to celebrate oneness uh, in that, and we like to help other people. It's innate in us. You know, mm. kids know what it is to be good, innately, I think, on the whole, and we're only taught differently as we go up through society. Jump in, mate. I look at, no, I agree, I agree with you. The, 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 one, the, the one element I'd add to that is we do like to help, but we typically like to help others who look a bit and smell a bit and seem a bit and sound a bit like us. Mm-hmm. So we are innately tribal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's quite hard to get people to think positively. To a degree, about I think we're evolving have, out of that. Like me being Welsh, I'd love to think within me, you know, and we're mm-hmm. tribal in in sense of what value you from back home. That's <laughs> the stuff that we have discussions mm-hmm. about, you know, and and that's yeah, that's built into us. But the more I travel, the more I see similarities rather than 
differences. Oh, I agree with that. And, and of course, it's built into our lizard brain that we want to separate and be in the comfort of people of similar. But once you make that leap, I think, in your brain, narratively, that yes, you look differently, you come from a different background, you might even speak a different language, and we're struggling to communicate, but you're still exactly made up of the same parts as me, and we're all living on this rock, spinning around, we'll have the same challenges, and we're all trying to do the same thing, which is to be happy and healthy. Preach. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Awesome. Also. Sorry, sorry. There's reasonably good research that, uh, yeah, backs up your, your point that we can only hold a certain number of meaningful relationships. Right. Right. So, so there is a natural kind of maximum number of people who we can, can treat as in our, in our inner circle of empathy. What's the mm. maximum number? It is somewhere, somewhere between 100 and 200. And, and that's sort of in the, in the outer, that's the outer limit. So people whose face we recognize and we can hold like three or four facts like right. oh he lives vaguely over there and is his partner that person and he's he's he fell over the dog oh, so, that time so quite distant then. it's pretty distant yeah. and it's some of the research i've read about this is it manifests in in big buildings so if you have a big apartment building mm. lots of people are technically neighbors but you you see it really quickly with the number of people who share lifts, for example, mm. so are seen on a regular basis. And if you, oh, I'm annoyed at myself that I can't and remember the numbers, but if you well. if you go over a certain number of people, then you you who, even if you see them in the lift on a certain rotation, you can't know them enough, and the the whole apartment building will feel like strangers. Mm. And so you actually have to reduce, so you have to put in multi-core buildings with two sets of lifts that serve a smaller number of floors. So you have a smaller group of people who are bumping into each other on a regular basis and can actually start feeling like a community. So while we are a global village and the internet is an incredible thing for creating communities, um, in terms of regular interactions, there is a, a hardwired limit in the number of those quality interactions that we can have. And I think that's something that people have realised with, with lockdowns, you know, having, having, you know, 15 faces on a Zoom call is cognitively immensely draining because we're just not mm. wired to process that many facial reactions at once. You know, we're, we're more able to do smaller group yeah, numbers. And that's, that's very old wiring that yeah. we, we still have to deal with. So that was a... a, a Lengthy plus one to your point, but also a yes <laughs> to your point that we are all humans together. No, I get it, I get it. <laughs> sharing yeah. the struggle. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm interested in, have you got any questions to each other as well or uh, that you wanted to kind of bring up in this opportunity to share two brains, three brains together? That I, think, I think we've been asking them a bit, haven't we? I had a question for you. Mm-hmm. It occurred to me just as we were talking, actually, and you mentioned the, the valleys. Oh, yeah. Um, it's called Pontypridd. Pontypridd. I've been Brilliant. to Pontypridd. Although I was born in Aberdeen, which is further up mm. the valleys, an old mining uh, village. Mm. That's where I was born. Sorry. I think of the name of the place. Oh, anyway, I'll come back to that one. Okay. It's a whole other thing. Um, mm-hmm. um, stunning. It's, have you been to Wales? No. It's, it's, Not it's beautiful. Mm. Stunning. Like New actually. Zealand done right. Mm. No, it really <laughs> is. It's, it's beautiful. It's I'm stunning. a fan of Sex Education on Netflix. It was all filmed in Wales. It was, yeah. Oh, it was. A couple it was beautiful. Of people. Yeah. 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 Oh. Um, 
got being from Wales. So it's being from Wales, right? Uh-huh. You, you've got a, you've got a. I mean, you've been in New Zealand a long time now, but you've got this kind of, you know, outsiders, um, you know, lens. Mm-hmm. So, what do you see when you when you look around, vis-a-vis, say, the UK, which is, you know, which mm-hmm. is a, a melting pot of, of, of tribes, in, in essence, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and Wales is, you know, even in Wales, it's a melting pot of, of, yeah. of folk. Sure. You know, multiple sort of, you know, hordes have invaded and created this, this melting pot. Um, what do you see um, today versus when you arrived in, in New Zealand as regards whether or not we're more together or more gotcha. separate or more divisive, more divided, more or more uh, as one? The potential has grown for that community um, Connectiveness, the idea of we're all in this together, especially with the shared experiences we just had in the last 18 months, two years. In terms of being not just a nation connected, but also a global community connected with a global issue, the global pause that we've all been through. Um, when I arrived in New Zealand, I actually came here in 2009 first, um, just on a jolly, you know, driving around for a month. Um, did a couple of gigs here. I was running my own business at that point. It was kind of fun. And then actually emigrated in 2011. So I've been here proper for 10 years. Uh, there we go. Um, the same wonderfulness that I love about this place is also the thing I think is holding it back. Being bold here. Mm-hmm. So the two things which are often quoted, which is the idea of a very egalitarian, um, mm-hmm. very low level of hierarchy and stuff. People are very Such approachable. You know, the tall poppy syndrome is the result of that. People don't like, we, mm. we're all on the same level here. We don't like the too many tall people, you know, I'm sorry, big people in terms of personalities and everything. And in some way, the you know, that side of it is most people are approachable. I do have found that as a cultural set. Um, the problem with that is you don't celebrate excellence mm-hmm. very well outside of the rugby field. Mm-hmm. It's the only place we do hold bastions up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, beyond that, that's very little in the community, especially community. We don't mm-hmm. hold up individuals very well and create mm-hmm. space for them, support them individually. We like teams, so the All Blacks again. We don't like individuals doing very well. Again, tall poppy, don't like that. So I think the one thing is amazing because you can literally walk around Wellington and bump into people you know and they're running businesses right mm-hmm. through to, you know, they're just students, whatever. It's great, but it's also holding back. The other mm-hmm. thing, which is the number eight wire mentality, <laughs> which is wonderful as a thing to throw around, which always gets brought up, is true. The attempt to do is sure, and it's sure in buckets. A lot of people try things. But I also think that you, you we, because I'm a citizen now, we only get so far with that. So the number eight wire, as you know better than I, is the idea that on a farm you use a certain type of wire to fix things and get things done. And it was like a versatile tool thing, right? Cool. Because you didn't have access to because the resources you access, that you were yeah. used to back home in the continent. Yeah. But again, you only get things done. You don't get them done. You get a bodge job. Or, yeah. yeah, or superbness, or awe, right? Mm. And that, is what other people are striving for overseas. Mm. They know how to get things done. They just want to get it done to wonderfulness mm. and have people come to them and go, tell me how you do- I know how to do that, but to do it that way, to do it that scale, to do mm. it that quickly, that cheaply, that superbly, tell us how you're doing it. And I can't think, apart from a few instances like the All Blacks, like the wetters of this world, 
uh, beyond that, you know, where, where does excellence lie? Uh, and we need a th let a thousand flowers bloom here. I think community is one of the biggest things that we, and the EWEs and the approaches that we take with the, the collaborations that we can get could mm. become amazing. And I, I, mm. I celebrated when I heard you say, I think that's something that's going to happen. It's going to mm. really take off, right? Mm. Boom. So that's what I see. But again, the potential this year has never been a lack of potential. It's such a rich nation mm. in terms of space, time, people, uh, um, less corruption, most easiest place to start business, all right, 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 right. Mm. But then we're a bit too comfortable because of all that as well. There's not much hardship here, which uh, beyond the very extremes, there's not enough of that to make us strive for more. Mm. Uh, and we're part of a global community. We think we're not. We're so connected at the moment. So I think we do that better. Um, so I'm a big fan of reaching beyond our grasp and seeing us as not... New Zealand, Otiroa, on the bottom of the world, on the ass end of the planet, as most people think we are, on a different time scale. And, you know, it's like, no, we're part of this. So when I think about Wales as well, I also think exactly the very similar things. The old empire has fallen apart at the moment in the UK, which in some ways it has to. It's been punching way above its weight for far too long and it needs to crumble and it, something else will take its place and that's fine. But with that has become a lot of hardships. I guess a lot of people in Wales really worried about nationalism that's growing there. Mm. Uh, when I was back a few years ago, there was the first time I'd seen in like a decade, no more than that, in the 80s was the last time I remember nationalistic kind of approaches to Wales, you know, the individual mm. Wales and it was independence. Uh, there were marches on the streets back in the 80s and then that dissipated for a good 30 years and then about mm. five, six years ago I started to see it again. And Brexit mm. has accelerated that. Mm. I'm not saying that's a good or bad thing. I'm just saying that, that scares me a little bit because nationalism always scares me because it's I always think we them. Can, them we and can us. be fairly clear. It's not yeah, a good it becomes thing. very. It's yep. upper and, and again tribal. Yep. Some ways it's great because I know my legacy and heritage. I know I come from a certain part mm. of the world that has a huge amount of. If we go back to 1282, if you want to, the mm. last Prince of Wales was killed mm. by the then English. Yep. So we were colonised, the original mm. Celts, or the, the original Britons, mm. right? Mm. Stuff like that. We go back you know, a long time in there. Mm. But I also just go, well, that's history that I didn't choose. And mm. it was luck that I was born there. Mm. I'm not going to drag it with me. I'm just going to say that's mine. Mine to own is a story. But, mm. you know, I'm going to look forward with connectiveness. So I don't know if I've answered your question in terms of oh, what I see. Yeah, no, just mm. potential. Yeah, no, no you did. Mm. Um, I, I just, I think, um, sorry, Isabel, I was about to say something. You, you, oh, you go. I've got to comment on something you've made. Yeah, okay. I, that's, that's made me think about Pākehā Tanga, the, the, the state of being Pākehā. And I've been doing a wee bit of reading on this. I'm just, I, I'm, I have no claim to any proper serious thoughts about it, but it's really interesting to me that, that the, the people who have the clearest sense of of who they are and, and things that they can be proud of in New Zealand seem to be Māori people, for all that colonisation has spent a long time telling them that, it, that they shouldn't be proud of themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot, of, a lot of my friend circle in particular, uh, you know, educated, middle class, bit wokey, are a lot of us are feeling a bit uncomfortable about being Pākehā because it comes with, it comes with the 
you know, often horrible stuff that our ancestors have done in the past yeah. in some cases, or horrible stuff that a, a Pakeha system did that we benefited from. And feeling, I think feeling like we can, we can stand in our own past and yet know that it doesn't define us, that we can choose whether to perpetuate that kind of thinking or not, mm-hmm. is an immensely powerful state to be in. So we're, we're comfortable looking back and and you know and acknowledging you know the new zealand wars and all those things and and deciding whether we want to celebrate guy fawkes just automatically because it was it's it's part of our culture or thinking you know how do we want to be now going forward and and i think it's it's really worth exploring one's pakehatanga a bit and and I often feel a bit sad because I, I think of concepts like the ones you were bringing up before, kaitiakitanga. I think if I go back far enough into my, you know, Celtic and Pictish ancestors, you know, through the, through the Angles and the Saxons and the Danes and all of them, all the way back, my people would have would have lived intimately on the land. Mm. You know, our, our placentas would have been buried on the land that we were that we've been living on that my antecedents had been on into. into post into what do you call it you know ancient history mm-hmm. i would have known all of the sacred hillocks and wells and dips and forests and known the legends that said why they were there as i gradually realized that maybe they were there for other reasons and i would have had that intimate connection to the land and who i was because of that land and that place and you know thanks to industrialization thanks to the british empire thanks to all these huge geopolitical forces i have been dissociated from that homeland but now i'm here i'm not from anywhere else and i'm white and so my pakehatanga is something that i think is really interesting and i wish we were more comfortable talking about that and exploring it Mm. i feel like we've got a lot of good progress and thinking to do about what it means to be a bicultural nation and to be a culturally competent nation because constitutionally we're bicultural Mm -hmm. Demographically, we're multicultural, and Auckland is the most diverse city in the world per capita. Fun fact. And so, how do we how do we think about who we want to be, standing in our pasts and looking towards our present and our future? I just find that completely fascinating, and I wish we were more comfortable talking about it. You know, the closest we've come is a fucking flag debate. It's like, no, no, don't talk about any of that. Just, <laughs> just pick a picture, everybody. Yeah. Pick a nice picture. <laughs> we didn't go so with the keys with the eyes. With the, just, la- with the laser eyes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a surprise to me. <laughs> Such a I'm shame. just conscious of time. We've got five minutes before we wrap up. Yeah. Well, I had a, and he had really, a very quick thing just before I handed Chris. Right. Just because I had a great experience at my um, citizen... Citizenry, you know, kind citizenship of, ceremony. That was that was yeah. one of the things I was trying to get to, uh, where uh, we had the Maori blessing and and yeah. uh, kind of we all stood up and read the thing and then we sat down and then uh, the the guy who did the blessing, uh, the karakia, came came back on and said a few words, which was really nice. And what he said was always stuck with me. He said, up until today, all of you have decided to make New Zealand um, your home. But from today, you can now call New Zealand your country, mm-hmm. which I found really arresting mm, at the nice. time, yeah. which is like there's a choice, but then there's an adoption mm. Yeah, mm. there. And I don't know if that leads That's into a other areas of thinking for you, but I just mm. really loved it. I wanted to share. Over to you. 
No, 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 no. It's, it's, all, it's all consistent with what I was about to say. I th I, look, I, I've, um, one thing I'd say is um, that the old adage that uh, if, we, if we don't know our history or learn from our history, we're doomed to repeat it, just is, is, is true today as it ever was. Um, and uh, so it's really important, I think, to, to be aware of where, where, where you've come from, both individually, f familiarly, but also n nationally. But, um, but I, I also think that guilt is a, is, a, is a really senseless emotion, which we all feel, um, you know, some of us more than others on a fairly regular basis for, 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 for um, reasons big and large. But it, it doesn't actually get us anywhere, right? So there's bugger all point in feeling guilty about um, where New Zealand has got to and, and, the, and, the, and the ills it still suffers from racially, you know, socially, politically, what have you. The only thing we can do is decide what it should look like in the future. And, and, and that's where all of our energy should go. And some of us are, are lucky enough to have the opportunity to, to, to be a part of defining it, to change the future. Others don't have that luxury. Um, but for those of us that do, then I think that, that great quote by the Dalai Lama rings true, which is that if you think you're too small to make a difference, try spending a night with a mosquito. <laughs> we, yep. we can make a difference. We, we mm. can, those of us who can, mm. should mm. try and make, mm. you know, change the world for the better. Mm. And, and, don't, and don't underestimate the extent to which you can, even if you fail a few times. To your point before about Kiwis, you know, we are quite sort of self-satisfied a lot of the time, mm. and you can understand why. We live in a great place, right? Yeah. Mm. But we're also the, um, one of the worst plastic polluters per capita in, mm -hmm. in the world, right? Because yeah. there yeah. aren't that many of us, so we don't notice the, mm. the mess quite so much. Uh -huh. So we can change these things. We can change. Yeah. And, and one of the great things that's come out of COVID, and there aren't that many, but one of the great things is the reality that we can be anywhere in the, in the world within reason, mm and have people working with us yeah. who are anywhere in the world. Mm. So, for example, you know, while clean, we've got people in Colorado, we've got mm. people in, in California, we've got people in Nelson, we've got people mm. in Wellington, we've got people... Mm. I mean, we can have global citizens. We can, we can have people who are just values aligned mm. and who have tremendous capability, and they can be wherever they want to be mm. at any given day. One of them is often in a camper van mm -hmm. somewhere in America, mm -hmm. dialing in. Why not? Mm. And, and I think that's great. That's actually a New, a New Zealand business saying we can change the world mm. and we can work with, mm. with people from all around the world to, d to do that. Mm. Um, and we can, e e yeah. Yeah, we can export good ideas that are going to change, yeah. change the world. And that is one thing mm. that New Zealand can do and should do more of. Yeah. Mm. In terms of wrapping up, Let's close it out with a proper, cool question. What is one thing you're going to take away from today that makes you feel hopeful in this conversation? Or that you're going to play with or use or steal? The fact that we've got having the conversation. Right. I, I mean, I'm nothing if not a pretty good thief. So there are plenty of good ideas that have come from this <laughs> that, I, that I'll pinch and claim as my own. Right, right. But no, we're having a conversation, right? And, and you're creating a... a, a format for a conversation mm -hmm. and that conversation is getting recorded and so you know a bunch mm -hmm. of people will watch that yeah. and they might take something from that yeah. and, and I love the idea of where an idea can go mm. it's that, it's that mm. sort of butterfly in the channel type, type thinking mm. somewhere some, somehow someone might watch this and go oh, that's oh neat 
I might, I might try something like that. That is lovely. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's beautiful, right? That's, that that mm. is the world we now live in. And our parents didn't live in that world because oh. the broadcast opportunities mm. were mm. fewer. We live in that we live in that world now. So we shouldn't underestimate the ex- extent to which something like this mm. could actually be could actually be the kernel of of a great idea that yeah. someone takes forth. Mm. I'm I'm similarly hopeful, and the the fact that this exists and it's and it's funded by yourself and by the, the good energies of the folk who make it go, and it's you know it's largely unreported. It's not a big mainstream media platform or anything, but it's making a difference. That that makes me hopeful. And Rebecca Solnit's little book, Hope in the Dark, is a really lovely uh, sort of yeah a little a little north star for our times. And and it, its essence is that the future is dark i.e. uncertain. Mm. So it's not guaranteed to turn out badly. And in that space of uncertainty is the possibility for us to change it and make it turn out good. And the hope isn't passive. The hope is active. So we we do things like this. We do them as leaps of faith, casting them out into the unknown in the hope that people will pick them up and do things with them. But people actually are. And it's often unreported. Mm And, and the, the power of connection and people coming together and organizing through these the broadcast opportunities and opportunities for inspiration and connection that the internet has brought us, bless it, and that bumping into spaces bring us, I think is it, that's where our potential is to, to make things a hell of a lot better and to, and to be joyful about it. It's going to be good. Yeah. It's going to be good. to the joy. Yeah. It's going to be fun. Well, thank you, you good humans. For doing this. Thank you so much. Thanks for stepping That's into it. the unknown with me. Thanks for the bad, invitation. Right? Good on you. Thank you. Not bad. Cool. So that was Creative Welly episode 25, the last of 2021. It's been great to have your ears with us. My name's been DK. Again, subscribe to Courageous Conversations with Bold Humans at creativewelly.com. Big thanks again to John O'Tucker over at Empire Films, who produces the video podcast of this unique, independently produced offering to the world over at Empire Films, as well as Flash Dog Studios and David Hamilton for hosting us as well. Big shout out to the end of the year to every listener and watcher of this, like I said, independently produced video podcast. Nobody pays us for this. We actually take the money out of our own pockets and produce this and our own time so whatever you are in the world we do hope you're keeping safe and sane keep having courageous conversations with bold humans and we'll see you back here in 2022 take care